You can follow Becca out the back door on that side. The rest of you, grab your Bibles and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So we're a few weeks into our study on following Jesus in a messy world. And as the, we continue that uh, study, let's look at what the Apostle Paul has to say, chapter 2, starting with verse 7 and going through verse 11. And he says this, So that, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship in, in prayer, in giving, in fellowship, in singing. And now, God, as uh, we continue to seek you through your word, we pray that you would, you would be the speaker to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would be free to work in our hearts and lives today according to your will, that we would see with spiritual eyes, hear with spiritual ears, to know the message you would have for us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was uh, in uh, ninth grade, I had to uh, wait for my brother uh, to give me a ride home from school. We lived 10 miles out of town, and he played football, so that meant that I had a couple of hours after school every day to just sit and, and twiddle my thumbs. Uh, for, for some reason, it never occurred to me that I could use that time productively by doing my homework or something like that. Uh, I was just bored. And so when I complained to my parents about this, they, they very compassionately looked at me and said, tough. And, uh, uh, you know, this is the way it is. And so then my dad suggested, why don't you lift weights? Because they had a big weightlifting room there at Stevens High School up in, in Rapid. And, and so there it was, uh, as a ninth grade, 84-pound scrawny little kid, I started lifting weights. And nobody taught me anything about it. There was no instruction. There was no supervisor back in those days. I just an empty weight room, and I went in. So I did whatever I felt like. And what I felt like was upper body stuff. I did curls and bench presses and lat pulls and all that kind of stuff, chest and arms, that's all I worked on. Five days a week, two hours a day for the year. So now we fast forward, 10th grade year. I uh, made it to the state tournament uh, in, the res in wrestling. Uh, I was in the lightest weight class, uh, which back then was 98 pounds. Um, because of my weightlifting... I was this kid with skinny little legs, skinny waist, and a lot of upper body strength, at least compared to any of the other 98-pounders, right? And so my go-to move that year was a headlock. I was really bad at takedowns, so I almost always got scored on first. The guy would take me down, I'd be down on the mat, I'd pop up, he'd be behind me, I'd turn around, grab his head, crank him over, and pin him. And I rode that move all the way to the state tournament. It's really lousy technique, by the way, wrestling. You should never do that, but I was so much stronger than the other guys that it just worked. State tournament was 
awesome experience. It, it, was, it was intimidating. It was huge. There was kids from all over the state there. And so as this little sophomore, I just followed around with the rest of our team, the juniors and seniors and stuff like that, because uh, it was just kind of overwhelming. And we stuck together and we were on the mat warming up and practicing moves and stretching out. It was still a couple hours before the tournament would start. And the guys on the team decided to go do something. I don't even remember what, but I decided to stay on the mat, just keep stretching out. And as soon as they left, some guy came running over to me, saw me. He says, hey, aren't you Mark Crossman? Well, now, that was kind of flattering. <laughs> this guy knew who I was, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty cool, you know, across the state. And he goes, I hear that you have a killer headlock move. Could you show me how that works? Well, sure, I could show him how that works. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And so I, you know, showed him uh, uh, how that went and, and uh, what, it, what it was all about. Well, as, as you probably know, it turns out, he was the coach of the kid that I had to wrestle. And he wanted to learn my technique so that he could teach his wrestler how to combat my headlock. And I was ignorant of his scheme and therefore fell right into his trap and he took advantage of me. And sure enough, I lost the first round in the tournament. Last week, we saw that Satan wants to do the very same thing to us, us as individual Christians, us as a local body together. The truth is, if we are ignorant of his schemes, he will take advantage of us. And from this uh, passage in, in Corinthians and a few extra verses that we looked at last week, we saw that there was two specific ways that he wants to take advantage of. One... Uh, which we focused on last Sunday, is when we fail to deal with sin in a biblical manner. You know, in general, when it comes to sin, we much prefer to ignore it, you know, gloss over it, uh, excuse it, anything but take ownership of it and say, yes, this is my responsibility, I was wrong, and, and therefore uh, I, I, I confess and, and repent. God tells us that there's only one way to deal with sin. We know we're imperfect people. We know that in the church, just because we're saved, Satan's not going to stop tempting us. We're not going to stop failing. Even as we grow in Christ, we can, we can learn to turn away from sin. But we're imperfect people. And so there's only one proper way as God reveals sin in our life or as we uh, get to uh, see it uh, in our own lives. And that's First John uh, 8 and 9, uh, which explains if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's, that's the only biblical way to deal with and to handle sin. And that's what we focused on last week. But then the other area that Satan would like to uh, keep us ignorant in so that then he can take advantage of us is in the whole area of forgiveness, which we read about this morning. In, in my experience, and when I say my experience, I mean me personally, the way I've done things, but also as a pastor over these many years and an opportunity to talk to lots of people who have been hurt in this messy world 
in my experience, we tend to think that we're a whole lot better at forgiving than we actually are. There's been many times I know in my own life when I would have claimed that I had forgiven someone, but if I was to examine it biblically, I realize that I've often fallen short of what God desires. Now, I ended last Sunday, you know, just asking a series of questions about forgiveness that I said we're going to get to today, so let's get right to that. I'm going to start with what I believe is probably the easiest question about forgiveness to answer, and that's the question of why, right? Why do we have to forgive? And the super simple, easiest, most basic answer to that is because God says so, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. God says that's what we're supposed to do. Colossians 3.13 is pretty straightforward. It says, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You really can't get much uh, clearer than that, can you? Now, to, to bear with one another, that basically means to put up with each other. Which doesn't really sound all that spiritual, does it, when you, when you put it that way? But that's what it means, although it, it, it does have a greater impact and sound better when you understand that we are to put up with each other lovingly and graciously and, and supportively and all these other things like that. But then it moves right in from that to the command to forgive, right? First it gives the command, forgiving each other. And then it gives the scope of the command. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Well, now, now, now it's starting to get personal. By the way, I'm just going to warn you in advance. God may step on your toes this morning. Not my fault. He's going to do it. Okay? Here's the scope. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. So according to that verse, who should forgive. Says, whoever, which means you and me, all of us. And who should we forgive? Anyone that we have a complaint against. That's a pretty big verse, isn't it? So that means anyone who has hurt you, you are commanded to forgive. And there's one thing that I can guarantee you in this broken and fallen world, in this messy place we call earth, you are going to be hurt. You are going to be sinned against. Somebody is going to wrong you. And we're called to forgive. Why do we forgive? Because God says so. Now, you know, when you're a little kid, you hear that line from your parents quite a bit, don't you? Why do I have to clean my room? Because I said so, that's why. And then they do it, right? Because as a little kid, that's usually a good enough answer for you. But have you ever noticed that as your children grow, 
get a little older, move into those teenage years, that doesn't seem to be nearly a satisfactory answer for them. They want to know the reason why behind the command. And maybe you feel uh, kind of that same way about this command that God gives to forgive. What's, what's the reason why behind it? Well, this verse gives one reason why, right? It says, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. See, we, we are called to forgive because God has forgiven us. Every sin, every offense I've ever committed against God has been completely and unequivocally forgiven. We are a forgiven people. Therefore, we should be forgiving. That's the way it works. Now, the Bible goes beyond that. It gives even more reasons why uh, we should uh, forgive others. Unforgiveness uh, leads to broken relationships, and, and that's the exact opposite of what God's called us to in terms of loving one another and reconciling with one another and that type of thing. Uh, by not forgiving, we harbor uh, hurt and anger in our hearts, which easily turns into bitterness, and we are warned repeatedly of the negative effects of those types of things in our lives. Uh, another reason that the Bible gives for forgiving is that we are never more like Jesus, never more like God than when we choose to forgive because God's a forgiving God, right? That's what we've already seen. The last verse of Ephesians chapter 4 says this, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. We forgive on the basis of the fact that, that God has forgiven us, but we also forgive in order to be like God, to show His character, to live like Him. And finally, in our passage that we read this morning in 2 Corinthians, right, tells us one more reason why we need to forgive. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. Let me just see a, a, a quick, just a quick show of hands in here. Who in here would prefer that Satan not take advantage of them? Okay, that's pretty much everybody. Uh, if that's true, then we need to forgive. That's what the passage says, right? But, but in order for it to be effective, it has to be true biblical forgiveness. Notice that Ephesians 4.32 ends with the instruction uh, uh, about how we should forgive, right? Just as God has forgiven you. Think about that. Just as God has forgiven you. That's the scope and the extent uh, of our forgiveness. It's supposed to be just as God has done for us. Therefore, that would eliminate on my part, your part, any kind of substandard or counterfeit type of forgiveness that so often passes as forgiveness in our day and age, sometimes in our own mind and in our own hearts. So you, you want to know how to tell the difference between real forgiveness and, and something that's substandard or counterfeit? Just take 
that Ephesians 4.32 and, and, and reverse it, right? So it says that, that, that we should forgive in the same way God forgave us, right? So switching it around, what if God forgave you in the same way that you're forgiving the person who's hurt you? Have you ever said, well, I'll forgive him. I just don't want to have anything to do with him anymore. Is that how you want God to forgive you? What about, I'll forgive them as soon as they pay for what they've done. Is that the standard that you want God to use in forgiving you? Or how about the idea of forgiving by avoidance? Have you ever thought of that as forgiveness? Uh, you know, I'm not going to do anything to them. I'll just, I, I just won't run into them anymore. Right? Oh, they're in the grocery store. I'm going down the other aisle. You know, uh, this type of thing. We're just going to avoid. Is that how you want God to forgive you? How about, I'll forgive them when I feel like it but my feelings are too hurt right now. I just can't forgive right now. Or calling not doing anything forgiving. You know, as long as I'm not actively, you know, seeking revenge or doing something against them, you know, then that's forgiveness. I think these, I think these examples kind of show us the importance of offering true Biblical forgiveness. And, and so then if we're going to answer that question, okay, well then what exactly is that kind of forgiveness? I think it's maybe easier to start with what biblical forgiveness is not. Because if we eliminate a few things it's not, then it's easier to get that good focus on what it is. So here is what it is not. Number one, it is not a feeling or based on your feelings. I mean, if you were to forgive when you felt like it, there'd be a lot of things you'd never get around to forgiving, wouldn't there? Beyond that, you haven't forgiven someone just because you no longer feel animosity or, or bad feelings towards them. You know, well, maybe enough time's gone, I just don't feel anything towards them anymore. That's not forgiveness. Number two, forgiveness is not forgetting. Now, I, I understand that, you know, as time goes by, that can cause even very painful memories to kind of fade away and, and, and that type of thing. But if, if forgiving is forgetting, guess what? There's, again, some things we're never going to forget. Beyond that, forgetting is just a passive thing that happens, right? It just happens to you because time kind of fades that memory. Forgiving is not passive. It is an active choice you make. So it's not, it's not feeling, it's not forgetting. Number three, it's not excusing. Biblical forgiveness is not excusing the other person. And I'm amazed at how often times we think of excusing as forgiving. 
oh, they didn't really mean it. Well, they, they were trying their best. They did their best. They were, they were, they were trying as hard as they could. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. That's not forgiveness. Those things don't ever deal with the wrong that was actually done against you. So here you go. True biblical forgiveness recognizes that what the other person did was wrong, that it was without excuse, and that it hurt. But by an act of your will, you're going to make the choice not to hold that hurt against them. So that would include practical things like not dwelling on the hurt, not talking about it, and not allowing that hurt to negatively impact your relationship with that person. And guess what? None of those things are done by your feelings or by your own power because that's the last thing we generally feel like when someone has wronged us, isn't it? See, what we feel like is taking that hurt and examining it from every angle and rolling it over and turning it over and looking at it all the time and getting all worked up about it. And we feel like talking to everybody about it because, you know, we want sympathy. We want our friends to to realize what a slime ball that person was in the way that they hurt us. And and we want them to, to, to help us feel good by sympathizing with us and piling on the other person. So we want to talk about it to others. And we definitely don't want to have anything to do with that person that hurt us. So we'll let that come between us in our relationship. So biblical forgiveness has to be a deliberate decision. And it's a decision that can only be made by the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Biblical forgiveness also means you are releasing them from having to pay for their sin, or at least make that payment to you. Now, now, please don't uh, misunderstand that. that we're, don't confuse that with consequences. There may be consequences that this person will have to go through. If they, if they steal your car and, and wreck your car, you can forgive that person, but there still may be legal consequences. They may have to buy you a new car, they, you know, financial, all these types of things. There might still be consequences. But in that interpersonal, relational, spiritual level, you aren't going to make them pay for that wrong that they did against you. And I think it's good for us to think of forgiveness in financial terms because the Bible actually uses financial terms when dealing with this subject. Uh, um, When someone has sinned against you, they owe you something. They owe you a debt. They took something from you. And you have a couple of options of what you can do with that debt. Option number one, you can make them pay. Right? That's what you normally do when somebody take something from you and, and they owe you something, you, you make them pay. So there's, you know, several ways that we can make people pay when they've offended us. We might withhold forgiveness even when they come and ask for it. Maybe, maybe sometime. Or we might just give them the cold shoulder, remain aloof from them, 
turn our backs to them, or worse, just turn and walk away from the relationship. Or we can try to inflict some of the emotional pain that we felt on them, right? I hurt, so I'm going to make them hurt. Maybe through some sarcastic words or uh, belittling statements or humiliating them in public some way. Or we can just lash out in anger, lash, lash out with harsh words, maybe seek revenge against them. Whatever the methods, the idea, we're going to make them pay. We're going to make them pay. That's one way we can handle the debt. But there's another option. Instead of making them pay, we can release them. We can forgive the debt. Now, to release means you're going to go to that person, you acknowledge the debt, but then you tell them that they are forgiven, they no longer owe you anything. They're free. This obviously is the biblical response and option to that debt. It's what God calls us to do. You know, there's two primary words in the Greek that are translated as forgive in our English Bible. Uh, There's one word that is used in verses uh, like the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, 12, where it says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That particular word literally means to let go, to release, or to remit. The other word, which was used like in Colossians and Ephesians, those verses we looked at earlier. That word means to bestow favor freely and unconditionally. So there's your biblical definition of forgiveness. It's both a release of the debt they owe you and a bestowing of favor upon that person. And both of those things have to be done as a matter of choice by you. Real forgiveness is an act of the will. So now you're thinking, well, yeah, but how can I do that? How, how can I actually release that debt when they actually hurt me, when they owe that something to me? I, I think there's two things that help us to be able to do that. First, by remembering the size of the debt that God has released from you. Take all of your sins, every one you've ever committed, pile them up in a great big heap in front of you and understand that God has released you. He has forgiven all of those. And when you look at that great big pile of sins that God has forgiven, not to minimize what this other person has done to you because it may have hurt horribly, but, but with that great big pile forgiven, can you not forgive what this person has done to you? So I think that's one thing that helps us, but there's also another. The second one is to understand the truth that God, He's a whole lot better at collecting payments for this kind of debt than we are. When we choose to get our own payment, well, we tend to escalate things, don't we? They did this, so I'm going to do that. And then they come back. And it just keeps going. 
But God, He knows how and when and the best way to exact the proper retribution. And, and let Him take care of providing justice for you. Let, let Him do it. And knowing that He is a God of justice and He will do what is best and necessary, well, then you can release that debt from that person. They don't owe you anymore. Let them owe God. Now, understand, I know that can be really difficult to do, and that's, that's why it has to be both an act of your will, not an emotional response, and why it has to be something that is done by faith under the power of the Holy Spirit within us. Because true uh, uh, biblical forgiveness takes God's work. And, and, and maybe that's where it has to start in your own heart if you're struggling with for, forgiving. Maybe you have to start in your own heart and say, okay, God, I want to do what you say, but I do not feel like it. I do not want to do it except that you tell me to. So God, would you please work in my heart? Would you, would you please change me? Would you, would you please bring me to the point where I'd at least be willing to try to forgive? And guess what? God's going to answer those prayers because that's what He says He wants to do in you. So pray for that own work in your heart. And I know, and we're out of time, there's a lot more about forgiveness that, that I haven't said and maybe I uh, created more questions than answers in your heart right now. And if you've got something specific that is bugging you, well, Come and talk to me and, and we'll see if we can look at what God has to say about that. But there's just one other thing I want to touch on as we close. What do you do if, if you forgive, but it just keeps coming back to haunt your memories? It's dominating your thoughts. It's, it's sabotaging your emotions, right? What do you do when you just can't get it out of your mind? Does that mean you didn't forgive? Well, I think what we need to do is understand that forgiveness is both an event and a process. It's an event in the sense that it begins and takes place with a decision, with a choice, an act of your will. But the healing of your damaged emotions, your hurt heart, your reconciliation with the a relationship, a broken relationship, that's a process. And all during that time, Satan wants to try to take advantage. That's what we read in our passage. And maybe he couldn't stop you from that event of healing where, where you said yes, uh, or I mean event of forgiving, where he sa- you said, yes, I'm going to forgive this person. But he's still going to try and sneak in and, and, and mess up the process. And one of his easiest ways to mess up that process is to just keep bringing it back to your mind, to just keep bringing it there so it builds. Because every time you do it in your mind, guess what? It grows. And, and, and now you're looking at it from every possible angle and you're seeing all the different ways this person probably hurt you and all this type of thing. And, and it gets more and more agitated and pretty soon you're like, did I even forgive? Where was I? So how do you combat that? Well, we've got another choice to make. That's what uh, forgiveness is a series of ongoing choices. And we can put into practice another difficult teaching that Jesus gave us in Luke chapter 6 where he says, But I say to you who hear, 
Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That pretty much would include anybody that you need to forgive, wouldn't it? Pretty much covers the gamut all the way across there. So how do we do that practically? So try this. Every time, every time, your mind returns to start brooding on that unpleasant event, whatever that situation was, that hurt that it was caused there, immediately use that as a cue to go to God in prayer. And first of all, you pray for that work in your own heart, right? Because forgiveness has to be God's work in your own heart. So first of all, you pray for that. But, but specifically, it says to pray for that person. So we need to actually use that, not as a, a time to ruminate on how much they hurt you, but to start praying for them. And guess what? You don't get to pray, God, squish them like a bug so they know how much they hurt me. Because that's not really a productive prayer. What does Luke tell us to pray? He says to bless them, to bless them. That means you have to pray for their good, for their welfare. So it means you might be having to put into practice another section, Philippians 4, 8, where it says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think on, dwell on these things. So can you find something true, honorable, lovely, good, or excellent about that person that hurt you and think on and highlight and pray about that one thing. And, and I know it might be a real struggle to come up with even one thing, especially if they really hurt you. But this is where you pray again and ask God, God, you've got to show me what is something good I can highlight and pray for that person. If you do this every time that you start thinking about that unpleasant memory, you'll find that after a while, you'll be able to start thinking of that person in a positive way. And those unpleasant and hurtful and painful memories of, of what they did to you will soon begin to be replaced by the love and the care that God's given you in your heart for this person. Here's the other thing. It doesn't just say to bless them. It says to do good. Do good, that's action. So how do you do good for this person? Well, it might be something as simple as whenever their name comes up in conversation, you choose to say something positive or uplifting about that person to whatever group is talking. Or when you see them, to give them encouraging words. Because now you're doing good. And as you do good, God will replace those hurt and damaged feelings and give you that genuine Christian love for them. You act first. The feelings come along later. So if I was to end today by saying, just asking you one question, who do you need to forgive and if God instantly brings a name to mind, guess what? He's got that work that He wants you to do, that He wants to do in your heart. And He's doing it 
for your benefit so that no advantage would be taken of you by Satan. Let's pray. Father God, I know this can be a difficult subject to to look at. God, we like the idea of forgiveness when other people have to forgive us. But it's hard when we're the one who has to do the forgiving, when we have been hurt. So God, we are asking for you to work in our hearts, for you to change us, that we might be people who forgive even as we have been forgiven by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand one last time as we close our service of worship this morning.